0: This episode of Cheat Codes, a Sickle Cell Podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit gbt.com to learn more.
1: Cheat Codes, a Sickle Cell Podcast, here with Dr. C and Dr. Z. Welcome back, Warriors. We are excited for a really good episode with you guys today. We have a lot of cool stuff going on. I'm going to bother Dr. Mike with the word of the day. We're going to touch base with our, with our friend,
2: Andrew yeah, Campbell.
1: I'm excited. Yeah. So Dr. Andrew Campbell from Children's National in Washington, D.C. will be on talking about some of his research. And then we're going to finish up with Dr. Mike breaking down a paper for us, as he usually does.
2: Looking forward to it. And this is episode 10.
1: This is episode 10. Let's get to it.
2: We have uh, my favorite segment, What's Happening Now? And that's where uh, Dr. Z tells us what's going on on the social media. So uh, what's happening, Dr. Z?
1: Dr. Mike, I want to do something a little bit different in this segment for you. I want to shout out a few people that are doing pretty good stuff. I like that. Yeah. We, you know, we're lucky right here in Detroit. We have the Sickle Cell Disease Association of Michigan.
2: We are so lucky. They're wonderful.
1: Yeah. So Charles, of course, Charles, Dr. Charles Witten, and then his daughter, Dr. Wanda Witten Sherney, have been... Um, a really, I mean, they've been the sort of centerpiece of sickle cell disease in in Detroit. Absolutely. And I recently, I I was kind of embarrassed, actually. I had not been to the Sickle Cell Disease Association of Michigan's website in a long time. And I went, after talking to Dr. Sherney, actually, she said, you know, a lot of patients don't realize how many resources we have on our website. And I was sort of like, "Ah, I love Dr. Shurney, but I I don't think their website can be that good. (laughs) And I went to it and I actually was very impressed. They have accumulated a tremendous amount of information for individuals with sickle cell disease. And a lot of this has come with a new addition to the Sickle Cell Disease Association of Michigan, uh, their team, a lady named Stephanie Wirth.
2: She's fantastic.
1: Yeah. So she's all over social media. And so I, as much as I love Dr. Sherney, she has one weakness and that's that she hates social media. <laughs> but Stephanie worth is like the Robin to her Batman. Right? So she is like all over social media. They're perfect compliments to each other. And Stephanie worth came in and she's just like disseminating all this information. She's all over Twitter. She's all over Instagram. Uh, she hasn't hit TikTok yet, but who knows? Um, And she came up with this really cool device. It's not really a device, I guess. It's a a tool. And it's called, you've seen this, it's the SAFER card. Okay? Yeah, the SAFER card is really, really cool. So the concept of the SAFER card is that you're a sickle cell disease patient. You're in the emergency room. You're trying to do your best to get the care that you deserve. And sometimes in that situation, you feel vulnerable and alone. So the safer card is a resource that Stephanie Worth and Dr. Sherney came up with together and basically it's an acronym. So the S is stop the pain, A is administer the appropriate amount of fluid, the F is fever requires immediate blood cultures and IV antibiotics, E is execute the guidelines to prevent damage, and R is reduce morbidity associated with inadequate care. So These cards are printable off the website for patients to carry with them, to remind physicians that they have a duty to be diligent, efficient, and effective in the care that they deliver to sickle cell disease patients. I like it a lot because I I think, you know, we give
2: ER doctors a hard time and a lot of times they deserve it, but (laughs) their job is hard. I mean, you know, you could come in with a gunshot wound or a heart attack or a rare problem and it's their job to deal with it and realistically they can't know how to do everything well they can't deal with everything all the time so I think they'll really appreciate you coming in with something that says here's my diagnosis here's how you treat me you know here's who to contact if you need more information I I think it's great
1: yeah it's wonderful so I I just wanted to shout that out real quick because that's a huge um, just a huge effort and something that's so valuable So there's a few people like this, you know, that are out there in the community that are doing great things, that are just out there trying to bring knowledge to people. You know, in a future episode, we're going to talk to Cass Trimnell from Sickle Cell 101, who's uh, connecting people from all around the globe to bring education to them. You know, we're going to connect with, you know, hopefully people like um, Shamanica Wiggins, who's also got a podcast called... uh, the fact, not opinion, podcast, and is um, you know raising advocacy uh, with Admiral drawer Gerard, 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 Gerard. That's a, it's like a French name.
2: I you know we saw him talk once and yeah, he was fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. and now I see him on TV all the time. And yeah. in spite of being on the task force, he still makes sense. Yeah, that's true.
1: Um, and, and you know people like, for example, Ashley Valentine from Six Cells, who has a brother with sickle cell disease, and. You know, Ray Bailark from Minnesota that just is doing awesome stuff all the time. I mean, there's, I'm sorry if I forgot your name there. I didn't really forget your name. There's just too big of a list to keep track of because there are so many good patient advocates out there in these community-based organizations that are doing such amazing work for this community. And it's so refreshing to see that.
2: No, And I love this. I mean, I, I think if we, on this segment, you can highlight some of those things and point people to resources and new sites of information and, you know, build community around us because there are so many people doing great things. And so, you know, we need to get the warriors all together, coordinate things so people have access to all that.
1: And like we have to support each other, right? Because five fingers together are a fist, right? Um, So the more we support each other, the more powerful we become. Coming soon will be Cash Trimnell talking about, you know, Sickle Cell 101 and and her efforts there. Um, So that's kind of what's going on with social media, Dr. Mike. I like it, Dr. Z. All right. All right, guys, coming up next, we have the Warrior Word of the Day with Dr. Mike. All right, Warriors, we're on to... uh, a really cool segment, I think, because I get to harass Dr. Mike and, and give him a little bit of a riddle before uh, we start the segment off. Dr. Mike, I've got a good one for you. So the word that we're going to talk about today, it, it's very interesting. It's a way that it's things that we can see on people. It's observable characteristics that individuals have. And it makes a big difference in sickle cell disease because we know that all of the people with sickle cell disease have the same genetic problem. All right, I think I'm getting there. But every person that we see, every single patient behaves a little bit differently. Can you explain to us what the word phenotype is? All right, some
2: phenotype. These are uh, getting harder, Dr. Z. I'm going to have to get a dictionary out here. (laughs) So the dictionary says the phenotype is the set of observable characteristics of an individual resulting from the interaction of its genotype with the environment. So genotype is what's in our genes. So if you have sickle cell, um, your hemoglobin gene has a mutation that leads to formation of, of the sickle cell hemoglobin, and that forms polymers and causes problems. So that's the genetic part. That's the genotype part of that. But there's also the environment. So if you get sick, if you are in the heat, then that can affect things. And sometimes... It's not just one gene in your genotype. So you might have the hemoglobin sickle cell gene, but you might have another gene like alpha thalassemia that might modify your phenotype.
1: Sure. Yeah.
2: So it's not just one gene that goes into that. So that combination of genes and environment make up uh, differences that we see. So people might have, you know, you might have two brothers and they have uh, genes from the same parents but one of them's tall and the other one's short. And that could be just the way the genes bounced. So part of it's the genotype, but it could be environment. Like, you know, maybe one of them didn't drink his milk when he was growing up and so he got the rickets and he wound up short. Um, So that would be like an environmental cause of height. So height is the phenotype. We can see you're tall, you're short. In sickle cell, the phenotype we talk about is often things like having pain episodes or having a stroke, or having avascular necrosis of the hip. So those would all be phenotypic expression of sickle cell disease. So they're the observable things. They're the things we can see that that happened. And they're a combination of the genetics. Like you have to have sickle cell to have a sickle cell pain episode. But some people have uh, more pain episodes. So they have a more, we'd say, a more severe phenotype of their sickle cell disease. And that could be because of a lot of things. It could be environmental things like they don't get good nutrition and they live in a hot environment and they don't drink enough water. Or it could be purely genetic or bad luck or um, a lot of things that we, we don't understand. But what we do see is that phenotype and we can sort of characterize people based on their phenotype. And so a lot of times people will say SS or S beta zero. We talked about these being sickle cell anemia before are the most severe forms of sickle cell disease as opposed to SC or S beta plus. And we'd say they have a more severe phenotype, but that's a generality. So you could have SC and have a bad phenotype yourself. Mm -hmm. That could be worse than somebody with SS who has a, as a milder phenotype. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of variability. We do, we see a lot of, uh, especially teenagers with SC who have a lot of pain episodes, they may have splenomegaly, they may develop some avascular necrosis of their hips or shoulders, Um, they may get acute chest syndromes, and we see some SS patients who do really well and, and don't have a lot of complications, so we would say that's an SC patient with a severe phenotype and an SS patient with a milder phenotype. And I should say it's phenotype with a pH. I don't know that when I was a kid that used to mean like we should say fat with a pH or something, but this actually starts with a pH.
1: It seems a little, it seems a little ridiculous to have pH make the F sound. I'm just saying. I don't don't know who came up with that. (laughs) That's neither here nor there, but let me ask you this. But in the context of sickle cell disease, is your phenotype completely dependent on your genes? So
2: it's not, you know, the phenotype is the interaction of your genes and the environment and your life experiences and the things that happen to you. So you could have a severe genotype. You could have SS, S beta zero, but by luck, by other modifier genes that might help the sickle cell by taking care of yourself, um, you might not have a lot of the symptoms of sickle cell disease you might not have a stroke you might not have acute chest syndrome you might not have pulmonary hypertension so we would say you have a mild phenotype and then at the same time we'd say sc in general is milder but you may have sc and other complications you may have asthma right and that may increase your chance of having acute chest and change your phenotype yeah. an individual's phenotype is in part because of their genotype yeah but it also has to do with a lot of other things.
1: So one thing that's really cool in this sort of regard is like, for example, in Pakistan, I ran into a, a doctor, a hematologist in Pakistan, and I was asking about the sickle cell disease there. And he was like, yeah, you know, like we have a lot of it, but the kids don't get as sick. They don't die as much. And it sort of got my curiosity going, like, why, why would that be? And just like you're saying, he was saying to me that this is a population that has so much alpha thalassemia
2: so that's one genetic modifier that could make your phenotype milder. Yep. I think, too, there's uh, been five individual times in history when yeah. the sickle cell mutation occurred. Yeah. And we break those into, we call them haplotypes. Mm-hmm. So they occurred at a time in a certain population. And so if you're a descendant of one of those populations, then you probably have a lot of the other genes that go with that, especially right around that beta globin and that can make a big difference. So there's you know, the Central African Republic haplotype, right. or there's the Benin haplotype, or the Cameroon haplotype. Sure. And I think in Pakistan, it's mostly um, the Indo-Arabic haplotype. Right. And like you said, a lot of people who have that, although the alpha thalassemia is on a different chromosome and is not inherited with that, yeah. um, often co-inherit alpha thalassemia, which can be helpful and harmful, but mostly helpful. They also tend to have higher fetal hemoglobins, which can help um, even before being on hydroxyurea. So that can modify your phenotype and make it a little milder.
1: Awesome, well, Dr. Mike, thank you so much for breaking that down for us as you always do. We appreciate you so much for doing that.
2: All right, well, thanks for that riddle, Dr. Z. I always like trying to puzzle those out and I always enjoy discussing these words. They're always more complicated than I think. but it's, it's fun to talk about. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. I'm excited for what's happening next, and that's Dr. Drew Campbell is joining us from Children's National Medical Center, and he's going to talk about a lot of exciting things he's got going on there.
1: Dr. Drew. Happy to be here. How are you doing with all this quarantine stuff? It's been challenging,
3: to say the least. You know, you have the personal side of this, and then you have the work side of this. I'm trying to be the teacher, IT tech person for school in your house. <laughs> so it's always challenging, finding fun things for your kids to do. Um, I've baked uh, so many cupcakes and also <laughs> made made homemade pizza smoothies lots of fun things for our, like kids we actually made um bruce treats uh, first time i've made that from scratch so a lot of fun things we do in the house now that i would have normally not done or so maybe in a weekend but it's really allowed us to really check our work life balance um and also I mean, for work, obviously, that's another challenge, deviating from the usual standards of practice, getting used to telemedicine as a venue for our family to communicate with us during this COVID-19 crisis, and also the changing um almost daily, not only from our local officials and government officials, but nationally, and also from the sickle cell community. We're just trying to stay afloat. I, I feel like it is like headline news every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but some breakthrough comes
1: with COVID-19. <laughs> so that's kind of where I am right now. It's, it's amazing. I mean, me and uh, Dr. Mike were talking about this. It's, the information just comes at you at such a high speed. It's hard to even keep up. And you know, we were having a conversation with Dr. Wally Smith, and he was telling us that uh, the NIH was saying there's like oh, what 100 publications a day or something like that on covid which is insane yeah well i'm glad that you're working on your um cupcake skills over there man
2: i'm a little bummed out about this i was sad when drew left michigan now we're missing out on baked goods <laughs> i
1: was gonna say by the time we get to ash we're all gonna be ready for a bake-off because i baked a cake last night too and yeah, my daughters tried
2: to make some gluten-free zucchini thing it was a disaster but the brownies um, were good
3: <laughs> we had the Pillsbury versus the Duncan Hines competition. We're we're not sure which
1: one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's so too far. We it's a to Good it. experiment.
1: <laughs> so, Doctor Drew, I mean, I, um, you know, we have we have a little bit of time scheduled with you. So, we were going to talk. We're going to touch on a lot of things, actually. So, the first thing that I want to hear about, and I think that it would be cool for the patients to hear about, tell us a little bit about how. Dr. Drew Campbell became Dr. Drew Campbell. And how did you get into sickle cell disease? How did you get into the space? What sort of, what set it off for you?
3: It all started uh, when I was young, as a kid. And um, I did have my godfather. He was a physician, actually. I grew up in DC area. Uh, His name was Dr. Don Downing. He was actually a cardiologist. He actually became chair of pediatrics at Howard. And I used to shadow him when I was in high school. And so that's the first time I noticed I like pediatrics, but that was in cardiology. But I always heard this kind of, you know, in the background, sickle cell disease at Howard University Hospital at the time. But it never, it never really resonated with me at the time. So as I went to college and uh, medical school, it's actually when I kept hearing about. So that's when I start thinking about, you know, disparities in healthcare and how I observed, even in the first year of medical school, because and I went to Case Western uh, Reserve School of Medicine. They introduced patient care early um, in your first year as part of the curriculum. One of the first um, encounters for me was actually a cell patient. This is at, in Cleveland where I just remember kind of shadowing one of the doctors. I just remember the pain this is this a seven, eight-year-old child was in and we're just giving them payment. And how we could not do anything more for this child. Um, And just that really resonated with me. And it continued through med school where I already had this interest in healthcare disparities. And so I did a special rotation in hematology in my third year medical school. And I decided then I said, well, I think I love hematology, not just sickle cell, but hematology. But it really started to gravitate towards sickle cell because I just thought there's so much more that needs to be done. And even understanding the disease, but also understanding the disparities in care for sickle cell disease patients. That's really where it started. And then after med school, went into residency and I saw more of it in Boston. Um, and that's when I decided to go into hematology, but more importantly, focus on hemoglobinopathies such as sickle cell
1: and fallacy. That's a brief journey I had. That's really cool, Dr. Drew. I, I distinctly remember, I have to tell our audience, the first time I met Dr. Drew was um, at a fellowship interview when I was applying to be a fellow at the University of Michigan. And uh, I remember sitting in your office and and having you tell me about what you're doing in Africa. That was like an eye-opening experience for me personally. The thought of global medical research and uh, being a physician in America and still being that involved in an area that needs it was just I had it hadn't even occurred to me as uh you know at that point in my training. So that was. That was huge for me, man. That, that like 30-minute interaction we had was, was huge. And obviously, you've continued to do such interesting and important things in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, we'll get into that shortly. Dr. Mike, tell me about the first time you met Dr. Drew. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I think I've probably known Drew for about 15
2: years. For a while, I was doing some research in Ann Arbor, and uh, we crossed paths. And at the time, I, I wasn't a sickle cell doctor, but I always kind of had an interest in sickle cell. And I was kind of a lab rat. And Drew also, I mean, in addition to all this international stuff, he was doing lab work with sickle cell mice and, you know, really had a finger in everything. And of course, super nice guy, always good to talk to, bounce patients off of. And, uh, you know, working down the street from each other for a long time, patients went back and forth. And I always knew they were in good hands when they were over in Ann Arbor with Drew.
1: Man, we, we miss you a lot here in Michigan. Yeah, man. I miss you guys. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean these are
3: these are my best buddies in Michigan. Uh, another guy, Dr. Patrick Hines, is there. So uh, I always Michigan always has a special part in my heart. Just a great group of colleagues and friends made my experience better while I was there. So again, and thanks for continuing the efforts and taking care of our
1: patients in Michigan. I know they're in great hands. Appreciate that, man. So. So, tell us a little bit about Children's National, man. Tell us about um, your clinical practice there and um, the kind of stuff that you guys do. Yeah, so Children's National is probably similar to Children's Hospital
3: of Michigan down in Detroit there. Very, very diverse population.
2: How, how old do you keep the patients still?
3: So, right now it's at 21.99 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then where do they go? So, they go to a number of places. We, they go to Washington Hospital Center behind us. It's part of the Georgetown University systems, a like Georgetown Washington Hospital Center um, behind us, uh, right on the campus of Children's National is right behind us. We also have Howard University, right? Adult Sickle Cell Program, we send patients there too. But in, in Prince George's, the problem with DC is Howard and Washington Hospital Center, for example, they primarily take, they don't take Maryland Medicaid patients. So a lot of times our patients, um, do scramble sometimes in state of Maryland. We do have some providers in Maryland. We have a great clinic, uh, Maryland Oncology Neumatology Group in White Oak um, that we just, we didn't know existed, but they do sickle cell. They they, they see sickle cell patients. We can start seeing patients there at the Montgomery County. There's a doctor, Dr. Anand in Greenbelt. He had kind of a private practice site sickle cell setup in Greenbelt, Maryland, but he doesn't have like exchange transfusions, you cannot do that. So a lot of our patients will, depending on where they live, will go to like Dr. Sophie Lankron and, and Lydia Pecker at John Hopkins University. It's, you know, it's an excellent sickle cell program, comprehensive, you know, outstanding program. But not all of our patients can live can go there. And that's where what's happening now is the University of Maryland is building a state of the art hospital. Prince George's County has a hospital called the Prince George's County Hospital, and they see sickle cell patients in the ER, but the University of Maryland has bought Prince George's County Hospital and is building a brand new, it's called Capital Regional Center, Capital Regional System, I believe, right, actually around the corner from the new Children's National Prince George's County Outpatient Center, and the idea with that hospital is to Build the center of excellence for adult care patients, and what we want to do is collaborate with the University of Maryland. So when we have to transition patients, we can just transition them right there, instead of going all the way up to Hopkins.
1: They're they're so lucky. Um, you know, the patients in that area are very lucky to have a team like that, and and somebody leading them like you, who's so passionate about, you know, making sure that sickle cell patients get the care that they deserve to have. Children's National, obviously, you, you guys have an amazing team. You guys have uh, always been involved in clinical trials, all sorts, of, all sorts of research. Tell us a little bit about um, the projects right now happening at Children's National, clinical trials, whatever it may be, science, basic science that you're most excited about, that you're most interested in.
3: So we have lots of, uh, I'll just kind of go over some of the kind of these, these topics. I won't I won't take too long. Starting with our, our we have a integrative pain clinic um, led by Dr. Leila Mahmood, our, our head of care specialist in our sickle cell program, and also Dr. Deepika who has, you know, she does research in uh, pain medicine and trying to understand really the, the signatures, the clinical signatures, we call, or what are those clinical signs and symptoms that, let's say, an adolescent patient would be at risk for developing chronic pain. So what are those signatures? So there's, of course, survey-based tools, in addition to, she's done some functional MRI studies, looking at uh, connectivities in the brain um, as it relates to chronic pain development. But in that integrative pain, they provide non- kind of opioid strategies We have We did have a physical therapist We're trying to get them back into the program, but we also have an acupuncturist, which she just published not too long ago, the effectiveness of acupuncture as an adjuvant to, to manage some pain with sickle cell. We actually now offer this to our inpatients. Uh, if you do what's called a panda consult or a palliative care cancer, you actually can get. That is part of your inpatient care. So acupuncture, uh, healing touch, mindfulness. So we have our social workers, and, and Brenda Martin, is our, who's our nurse practitioner, who, who helps us with our inpatient patients, chronic pain inpatient patients. She helps. She does it mindfulness and healing touch. So it's, it's a, a lot of things that we do in that clinic, but also doing uh, research while we do that. And then we have uh, Shep nickel who does a lot of research. He's looking at hydroxyurea and adding hydroxyurea to transfusions to see if you can space transfusions. It's called the HAT trial, uh, which, is, which is outstanding. And that study should be done soon. We have a sibling study with non-myelobative transplant called the SUN trial. So again, non-myelobative transplant is similar to what they did in, in uh, Chicago, the adult study in Chicago. So very, you know, non, uh, not as heavy chemo as a regimen to do transplant. So for our audience, you don't give as much chemotherapy, very little of it. So and you take the match, you take the sibling who's a donor for the bone marrow, and you transplant it to the sickle cell patient. So that's a trial that's there. So we have multiple clinical trials in bone marrow transplant that the Alex or Abraham is, is working on we actually have a lot of research in, in our uh, psychologists. It's really exciting. Uh, and personally, you know, my interest is, is a lot as of ours that primarily is looking at phenotypes of sickle cell disease patients. Um, what are the predictive phenotypes? Uh, what are the uh, biomarkers? What are the genotypes? What makes every sickle cell patient different? I have an interest Basically, international medicine and international patients because I believe that there are different phenotypes within each and potential each subset of patients, depending on their region of the world, potentially with or without environmental influences. Right now, we actually have a natural history study that, right now, led by Dr. Deepika um and our sickle cell team. But my interest in that is trying to understand different phenotypes within siblings uh, with sickle cell disease, and what makes one sibling different than the other. I have started some, I did some studies in Ghana uh, also in that. So just really what are the predictors of that? So we're, so one of the things I'm about to do is start to you know, future do some uh, SNPs and some genomic studies. Um, we genomic studies to see the same genes that's associated with pain or something, more like acute uh, chest syndrome or AVN or any kind of genes you know, is that predictive of like one sibling developing, like if you have a sibling pair that has AVN, the other one does not, is that a predictor of one sibling developing because they have the same environment, not only, you know, from the environment of the family, but also genomic, uh, in terms of genes, they they share the same similar genes.
1: Speaking of your sort of trans, your, I guess, international efforts, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this consortium for the Advancement of Sickle Cell Research that you talked about at ash um, but but I want to hear a little bit more, and I think our our audience would benefit from hearing about it
3: yeah, so this is something that we, you know we started when I was at the University of Michigan where just some friends of ours where you know about basically two thousand eight and nine um, just kind of came up with the concept of trying to Really, I think on the side, if you will, not interrupting anyone's research, but we met at ASH and we thought we wanted to get together to really understand uh, the differences in patients with sickle cell disease in different regions of the world that we can come together and put together a, a vetted questionnaire, right? That allows us to just collect data on our own we just started with a simple questionnaire. We put a protocol together. We actually did a, a Doris Duke grant first. And we decided to pick an organ. We just decided to pick kidney because you know just start with some organ first. But actually it became it became more of a look at everything because what we started as we started to collect the data. We started to see there were differences of phenotype in each of the patients. It started at University of Michigan when I was there. We also, as part of a uh, NIH grant that I had, a Fogarty grant, where I was a I was a PI, co-PI of a grant where we sent students to the university, from the University of Michigan that these are medical students, uh, school of public health, and undergraduate students to different countries around the world. I had projects in Ghana, so we decided to get our collaborators in, in, in Ghana as part of the CASIR group so that we could look at patients from sub-Saharan Africa, look at patients from Europe, and look at patients from the United States, and just collect data.
2: Drew, you were saying that you saw a change in phenotype. So for our warriors, phenotype is sort of the outward, outward appearance, the things that we see. So it might be like a, like a disease manifestation that you could see was different between groups so there were some differences depending on what country you lived in uh, were those genetic things or environmental things or are you kind of looking into it now and what were the what were those differences that you saw
3: so so there's a sub-study which is so there's two studies there's one study that Charles Antwi uh, about Waka who he's he and I have this research study in Ghana where we had prior to the Kizir, and we can tell you that we have looked at phenotypes, uh, like we, we looked at polymorphisms of the nitric oxide gene, or enos, we know so what we mean by that is the, there's different genes. You can the genes that make nitric oxide, we can we can have the same gene, but there's different variations of that gene. And if you have an, if you have a gene change in that we call enzyme that makes nitric oxide, your, your nitric oxide production would be lower or higher. So what we found was in Ghana, for example, there was a subset of patients who had more leg ulcers or priapism. They actually inherited that gene more than uh, other patients who did not. For example, we also studied we called levels of inflammation. So we have markers of inflammation. If your body's inflamed more or uh, markers that make your blood sticky—that's called VCAM. That's a molecule we studied. And in Ghana, just by itself, we found that a lot of these markers that affect vascular health, that affects stickiness in the vet in the in the uh, within the vessel wall in sickle cell disease was more associated with increased painful episodes, more associated with leg ulcers, priotism. So we did see we call Clinical picture within some of the Ghanaian patients that had these increased inflammatory markers that we saw also in the United States. So in the Casir group, what was very interesting was that we saw a number of differences. We saw let's start with pain. So we're actually writing a paper on this. We saw geographic geographic differences in pain. For example, we noticed that in the UK, when you had a pain crisis. You know they didn't go to the they didn't go to the clinic they went when they go to the emergency room the percentage of the patients will actually get admitted to the for pain we know in ghana the pain frequency they we know that when they get pain management in ghana they tend to go to the clinic for their pain management because a lot of them won't have home payments whereas in the united states you know we saw a different pattern we looked at the adult groups and we looked at the pediatric groups we know that the adult groups the in ghana Going to the, uh, we call it day hospital in the United States. They have like a day hospital they have a clinic in, in, in Ghana, for example, in Accra, Ghana, where they will have beds where they would just give them pain meds, sometimes with IV pain meds, sometimes oral. They give them hydration. And it was very similar, the adult groups in, the, in Ghana and adult groups here in the United States. In the pediatric groups, we noticed that the frequency of pain visits to the ER hospitalizations were actually pretty low in the United States. Compared to Ghana, again because the lack of resources, lack of getting uh, access to oral pain medicines, so we we did see that difference. The other the other difference. So, so that's not only kind of the uh, pain phenotype. Well, not pain pain pattern differences, but also access to healthcare differences. And that's what we're starting to figure out. That's that's as important as the reporting of the pain. So we noticed. It really uncovered the healthcare utilization differences within Ghana, Europe, and the United
2: States. That's super interesting studies because I I think you can unload a lot of things there. I mean, you've got different subpopulations. In the U.S., you know, we're a salad bowl or a melting pot or something. So we have people from all over the world and, you know, we may have subpopulations that are more genetically homogenous, but we see people from all over. Where in Italy, they probably have a sort of unique genetic signature. In Ghana, they probably have a more unique genetic signature. And by seeing the differences there, you can maybe tease out what genes are involved, and those can maybe suggest targets for drugs or uh, things that can help us predict who's going to have what problems. And then looking at the systems, how the healthcare system is working with people, we can see, you know, what we're doing well, what we're not doing well. Um, where we could maybe help other countries and where we could learn from them so i you know this is great work
1: yeah it's, it's amazing i mean it's a huge effort it's a huge huge effort to have this type of data being shared across so many different countries at so many top-notch centers it's a huge huge undertaking so i mean kudos to you man for getting this off the ground
3: you know this is a collective effort i mean it's still we it's still we have to do a lot with the data that we have, but, you know, I really want to thank our, you know, my casier group, which, you know, during this journey, you know, gave, gave some honest criticism. We've had meetings where, you know, we had to really vet the data and, and really go over it with a fine tooth comb, making sure it's, it's reliable and it's, you know, that the data collected, collected reflects what actually is happening. So one of the things what I would just briefly touch on, is the most fascinating thing of all of this was in our questionnaire, we actually asked in, in the questionnaire, you know, where were you born? Where were your parents born? Where were your grandparents born? And we had them right in the countries. And essentially what we found was that in the United States, at least I know in, in D.C. is much higher, by the way, we looked at country of origin of, or birth of, of mother. We looked at it also in father. But for the manuscript we wrote, we primarily looked at the mother. And this is going to be coming out in the Journal of Racial and Ethnic uh, Disparities. And we had 877 patients. What we found was that we had essentially patients in the United States were at least first generation 30% we're not the you know, first generation U.S. and 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 if we go one generation be beyond that, from the data I have is forty percent. So we had twenty-two different countries of birth represented in the United States out of two hundred plus patients alone. And what we found was that in the U.S. group, we found that the Caribbean and sub-Saharan Africa, which was mostly Ghana and Nigeria, patients emanated from those countries. Jamaica was the most, the number one, and then Ghana and Nigeria were next, and almost every Caribbean island. It was amazing. And so many different subterranean African countries I would represent in the US group. But that was about 30% of the population. And then in Italy, it was even more fascinating. If you look at the country of birth of the patient, 66% was born in in Italy. But if you look at the country birth of the mother, right, only 14% was born in Italy. And it was basically um, additional, at least 12 different countries in Italy from Benin, Congo, Puerto Rico, St. Lucia, Burundi, Morocco, Nigeria, Senegal, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast. That's just a difference, amazing difference. Um, and then in the UK, um, 85% of the patients were born in UK. This is, again, our sample size, 200, approximately 200 patients. But only 5% of the mothers were born in the UK. So that's a difference, 85 to 5%. And in the UK, 50% of the parents, the mother was born in Nigeria, 14% born in Ghana, 8% were born in Jamaica, and other countries, as Congo, Sierra Leone, Just, just amazing. So, essentially, if you look at, and in Ghana, there is really no difference. the gracious country of birth in Ghana, 98% for the patient, 98% for the parents. So, basically, we also looked at racial background, and we found that this is, you know, as a self-report, so, you know, we have to be careful with some of the data, but essentially what it told us, so 90% of our whole group was either African or African-American, um, 3.4% were Caucasian, was uh, Latino or Hispanic. A small percent was Native American. A very small percent also identified themselves from the Middle East. And then if you look at it from each country, 21% of the patients from Italy identified themselves as Caucasian. Uh, A lot of the patients will have sickle beta thalassemia that we saw. And we saw that when we looked at the genotype profile and we found in Italy That a combination, close to 20% of the patients in Italy was either sickle beta thal plus or sickle beta thal zero, and for the audience, that's the combination of sickle cell and thalassemia, and they had the highest percentage of those patients. So basically, from our paper, what we found, our basically what we concluded, was really that you know when we are doing any type of clinical studies or clinical trials. That there is a diverse ethnic background of, of patients in just in sickle cell disease in general. We already know about the environmental heterogeneity with each of the different countries, but even clinically, and just coming from different parts of the world, you know, there might be other factors, right? That we may not be paying attention to that might be inherent in certain populations of the world that. You know, you know, we just feel that it just underscores the need for kind of global partnership, not just the United States, but just global partnership for further, our further understanding of the epidemiology of sickle cell disease.
1: And
3: uh, for example, a, a study in pain, if you're doing a clinical trial, you know, what are the differences in each? I think we found this out from the Dove study that came out. So we really have to incorporate the, also the cultures, You know, there might be also cultural differences based on ethnicity of families.
2: Those are hugely important points. Dr. Z had a letter to the editor in New England Journal because they were talking about G6PD, uh, which is an enzyme deficiency. And there's a a severe form where if you eat some fava beans, your red blood cells explode. And there was an article in New England Journal said that's not very common in the U.S., but we live in Detroit and there is this huge population that migrated from the Middle East. So we see cases all the time. And I think it's something we need to think about. And even in the setting of sickle cell, you know, you may not see a lot of severe G6 PD cases with sickle cell, but it might affect how you use certain medicines in that population. And if, you're, if you've got a population that's coming from all over the world, you gotta think about these variants that, that might come into play.
1: You know, people like to paint sickle cell patients with a really broad brush. You know, like they're all the same. They all behave similarly. But we know time and time again, that's completely untrue. This is It's such a unique phenotype in every, really in everyone, even, even within a family sometimes. Um, and, and this kind of helps add to that sort of precision medicine. Like everyone can be different. It's not the same population. And it, within the United States, the population is very diverse.
2: And I, I think too, you brought up these sort of cultural things. And I, I think when you have, you know, any diverse population, people are bringing different practices to the table. I remember as a fellow, we had a leukemia patient who came in and he had a big swollen knee and uh, grew a funny salmonella. And it turned out he had been eating rattlesnakes because um, in his culture, people thought that that was, uh, you know, it was kind of a, traditional, traditional way to fight cancer. Um, and so I, I, th- I think you need to be knowledgeable about all of these d- different cultures.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, um, it brings up another point, you know, we're, we're actually starting a, a social determinants of health project at Children's National, which, you know, I'm very excited about. It, it really, that part, the social determinants of health, that actually, this study has really enlighten me in terms of not just cultural background, but just the diversity in, you know, access to care, uh, what factors play a role in a patient getting care, um, and how the environment and the social determinants of health can affect the clinical outcomes of patients. And that cannot be further from the truth from what I've observed in Ghana. And also, like you said, even in Detroit, and I've seen in parts of D.C., that you know, you, you really, we really forget that factor that plays a role in how patients do well with sickle cell disease. You know, can they pay for their medication? Do they, you know, do they have adequate insurance? Do they have out of adequate housing? Do they have food insecurity? And how that can play a role in terms of the priorities of that household. The priority of that household is trying to just get by, like getting food and heat and, and a roof over their head. Sometimes the medical aspects doesn't get the same attention. That sickle cell patient may not get the same attention because there's so many environmental and, and, and social determinants that we have no idea that impacts the outcomes of patients.
1: So true. Well, Dr. Drew, I mean thank you for thank you for continuing to shed light on this on this disease and and, and making making so much progress for this group of patients. We, we really appreciate you. We appreciate you taking the time to, to do this with us today.
3: Oh, happy. any Anytime, you know, my friends, but really, most importantly, the audience, you know, and for our sickle cell warriors who are, who are listening, there are better days ahead of us. I think that we are very happy with where things are going, but still continue to inform us and keep us honest. I think we really need that as providers. We really need help from you and continue to provide that help and assistance. Thank
2: you. Thanks, Drew. We'll have to get you back up here to Michigan
3: soon. Yeah, definitely. I'm have to come down. Okay, take care.
2: Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell
1: disease. All right, Dr. Mike, um, I am really excited about this particular piece that you are highlighting for our next segment. So I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting the author of this article at Ash and also had a conversation with him on WhatsApp from the Congo. And we had a, a really nice conversation. And, and the work that you're going to highlight is very important because the fact of it is that only probably 5 or 6% of the world with sickle cell disease has access to the kind of care that we can deliver in the United States. The burden is in countries that have no real ability to do things like blood transfusions or have emergency rooms ready with opioids or IV fluids. Um, There's a huge gap in the care, not only of individuals in the United States, but if individuals who are in these developing countries, the gap is even larger. So we're behind in these countries like the United States and UK and France, but we're so, so behind in countries that have none of these resources. So I'm very excited about the light you're going to shed on this new paper.
2: Yeah, I'm excited about today's paper too, Dr. Z. Um, Today's paper is from the continent of Africa and from the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a study that was published in 2019, so a very recent study of Hydroxyurea for Children with Sickle Cell Anemia in Sub-Saharan Africa. And the first author who Dr. Z interviewed for the Ash News Daily um, when he presented this as one of the plenaries at Ash, which is an amazing accomplishment, is Leon Shalolo. And there's an international group of investigators which includes mostly uh, people from Sub-Saharan Africa, which is wonderful. So. We have known for a long time that hydroxyurea can be effective in the U.S. Like Dr. Z said, most of sickle cell is in the U.S. It's not in Western Europe. It is in Sub-Saharan Africa. It is in Pakistan. It is in other parts of the world. And the question about hydroxyurea in those settings is, you know, can it be delivered safely? Here we're monitoring blood counts. We have a a lower rate of infection. We have people getting immunized. We have, you know, relatively good nutrition. But what about on, nutrition may be a question where infection risk is high, where there's a high rate of malaria. Is it safe? Is it still going to be effective? So with that, this phase one, two, so this is an early phase study where they're checking out feasibility and safety, and it's open label, so everybody knew they were getting the drug. Really, they were looking at safety in age uh, one to ten year old children.
1: Spoiler alert: We know hydroxyurea is safe.
2: We do. I think, though, you know, it is a question in a country where it's hard to get a blood count, in a country where you have malaria, is what? it? Tell me about is the is malaria connection. There. Yeah, I, you know, um, is that a concern? I, you know, I, I am not sure it should be, and this study will show that it shouldn't be. Okay. But we know that sickle cell actually probably exists in the way that it does because of malaria. For sure. So if you have sickle cell trait, it protects you against certain kinds of malaria. And in areas where there's malaria, there was selection pressure. So this gets into evolution. And in this case, where there's malaria, it can be very severe and people can die from it. And if you had sickle cell trait, you were less likely to die from it and therefore more likely to pass your genes on. So then more of the children born would have sickle cell trait. And so we, we think that's why sickle cell trait is so prevalent in areas where um, there's high rates of malaria. So then the question is, if you treat people with sickle cell, could it make malaria worse? I, I think that's actually a
1: very interesting question.
2: Turns out it's not true which is what I I would have expected. Um, So they did this study in four sites, in Angola, in the Congo, um, in Kenya, and in Uganda. And they did it in two parts. So this was a safety trial. They wanted to enroll a certain number of patients and then pause the study and make sure those patients were doing okay before they went on and enrolled more patients. So they enrolled 53 patients at each of those four places, and then they paused the study yeah. and they monitor for safety and it went well. And then they enrolled a whole lot more. Two months of pre-screening to collect data on these patients we were doing before.
1: Understand their phenotype.
2: Exactly. Back to our phenotype. And then um, they started patients on 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram, which is about how we start people in the U.S. But usually we'll pretty rapidly move to increasing the dose. But here they kept that dose the same for six months. And then after six months, if they were doing well, they could have a dose escalation of 2.5 to 5 milligrams per kilogram. The endpoints, the, the primary endpoint, so the, the thing they were most looking at in the study, was were they going to have what we call dose-limiting toxicities of hydroxyurea, mostly around blood counts. So hydroxyurea, one of the side effects is it can lower your blood counts. It can lower your white blood cell count. And that's one of the ways it works. Yeah. That's one it of it's can lower. Effects. Yeah. But if it does it too well, that can For be a sure. problem. Absolutely. And it can lower particularly your neutrophils, which are one of those white blood cells that help fight infections. It can lower your hemoglobin levels. And we don't want that. We want it to increase your hemoglobin levels. Um, it can lower your reticulocyte counts. And we want that, but Safe. we don't want it to be too much. Yeah. Um, and it can lower your platelet count, so they measured that, and it went well. Um, about five percent of patients had some um, low blood counts and needed their hydroxyurea to be held. But they enrolled six hundred and thirty-five patients total on this study, and that of those, just
1: a humongous that, number.
2: That's a big study for a pediatric hydroxyurea study. And of those, 606 really started on the drug, and 600 completed three months, which I think is really impressive. Amazing. But the most impressive thing is at three years, 94% of the patients continued on hydroxyurea. That's ridiculous. I I think that's, uh, you know, people stay on stuff when it helps them. For sure. So I I think it shows that they, they were getting benefits from this.
1: Well, and I don't want to dive into it too much, but just a little bit. I mean, the reasoning for this particular population that is so much further behind our developed country population, do you think that the retention is because they don't have other resources? Do you think that that's why so many people continue? Because they know they don't have a backup?
2: I think so. I mean, you you see this too. We we meet families from sub-Saharan Africa who move to the Detroit area and have children with sickle cell. Yep. You know, everybody has, is devastated when their child's diagnosed with a disease that can make their life more challenging. But you can see that anguish in these people from sub-Saharan Africa, and it's different. And I, I think it's different because they know where they come from. Yeah, What they saw was people who had sickle cell die at a young age. They live a terrible life. They can't achieve things that other people do.
1: Context. The,
2: the, the, their, their context is yeah. in the setting of no penicillin prophylaxis or vaccines or pre newborn screening, bone marrow transplants, transfusions, hydroxyuria. Basically, what we were at where people died as children. Yep. Um, and and so was,
1: now you have this drug available in the United States since the you know late nineties. We're bringing it to you now in twenty seventeen. Do you want to be on this trial? They say, yes. Feeling better? I want to stay on it. Yep. And so 4% of the 600 people still after on the three drug. years. Amazing. Yeah.
2: And so they also looked at laboratory values. And their um, the subjects on the trial, hemoglobin, went up by about a gram per deciliter, which that's pretty significant. It's
1: like the effect of uh, one bag of blood in an adult.
2: And the size of their blood cells went up. Um, and that is a normal reaction to hydroxyurea. So we know where they were taking it. Yep. The fetal hemoglobin, which is one of the main ways hydroxyurea works, 12.5%. And the white blood cell count went down. The reticulocytes went down. The absolute neutrophil count went down. And those are all um, ways that hydroxyurea works. And so then um, they looked at you know, what I think are the most important things, which are what are the clinical benefits of this? So we, we know there were people who had dose-limiting toxicities to hydroxyurea. But what about adverse events in general? Well, there were actually more adverse events in the group. Not on hydroxy Not on hydroxyurea, like uh, almost twofold higher, um, including serious adverse events, things like hospitalization, death. Um, so that the when the people weren't on hydroxyurea, they actually had more side effects, side effects of sickle cell disease, but right. m- more adverse events. Right. Um, and then they looked at the rate of sickle cell events. And it was, again, about half 114 per 100 patient years versus 53 per 100 patient years. And those are things like pain episodes, acute chest syndrome. But another thing to worry about your lower in white blood cell counts are you going to have more infections? So that's one sure. of the reasons that they wanted to do this study to well, see that, what happens in Africa
1: with our patients. Absolutely. Right? Like, hey, you're going to lower my white count. You're immunocompromising me. Right. Is this going to be an issue? So what happened there?
2: And, and like we saw with Baby Hug yeah.
1: um, in the United States. And that happens to us all the time in the United States. Patients always say, that, hey, man, if you're going to lower my ability to fight an infection, I'm immunocompromised. I don't want to be on hydroxyurea.
2: Right. And what we saw in Baby Hug in the was that that wasn't true. There were fewer infections in the people on hydroxyurea. And that's what we saw here. So the rate of infections also declined. So for non-malaria infections in this group, there was 142.5 non hydroxyuria and 90 on hydroxyuria per 100 patient years. Wow. And severe infections was even more dramatic. It was like
1: 28.9
2: versus eight. So almost like three or four times fewer serious infections.
1: Amazing. It's amazing.
2: And then malaria. We talked about malaria. That was a concern. There was actually less malaria in the hydroxyuria group. That's so interesting. It was, uh, about half as much. It was 46.9 when they weren't on hydroxyuria and 22.9 per 100 patient years. Also, less blood transfusions. So I, I think people always say, I don't want to be on hydroxyurea because of the side effect and I don't want a blood transfusion because of the potential problems. Hydroxyurea can prevent the blood transfusions. And here's an example, 43 blood transfusions per hundred patient years, not on hydroxyurea. On hydroxyurea, 14.2. So about a third as many. Amazing. And then, you know, to me, the most important thing, deaths. Yeah. Three point six deaths per hundred patient years, and this is in one to ten year olds. I wow, three point six percent deaths in, in one to ten year olds. Country, right? Yeah, so scary. Yeah. On hydroxyurea, that goes down to one point one. So you're talking about you know two thirds, seventy percent reduction in deaths from sickle cell related complications. It's crazy in patients on hydroxyurea in this group. So you can see why people would stay on why there's a 94% retention rate. You're having less pain, less acute chest syndrome, less transfusions, less death. So really amazing study and they met their end point. It's safe and feasible to use hydroxyurea in sub-Saharan Africa. And so this is, I think, becoming more and more a treatment for our brothers and sisters in sub-Saharan Africa.
1: Amazing. Amazing. I, you know, he, when I talked to him on the phone,
2: this is to Shalolo.
1: Dr. Shalolo, yeah. He was, in, he's at, he was at Kinshasa and he was telling me how he sees, you know, in one clinic day, he sees hundreds and hundreds of patients with sickle cell disease. And for frame of reference, me and Dr. Callahan on average probably see eight, 10 patients a day. Yeah. When every, you know, 10, when, if everybody shows up, maybe 12, maybe 13, he's seeing hundreds lined up, just to give you a frame of reference as to how many, how big of a problem this is, right? So he's telling me, I said, tell me about something from this study that stands out to you. That was a question I asked him. And he said, there was one family that lived about 90 miles away from Kinshasa, which was his site. Their daughter had been having regular pain. She was missing school. There was all sorts of issues. And he told me that about three months into her being on hydroxyurea, he gets a call from this mom and the mom says, Dr. Shalolo, I think you were wrong. She doesn't have sickle cell disease. And he's like, why would you say that? And she's like, because ever since we started this medication, this is a different person. She's going to school. She's like playing soccer. She's not having pain. This is not sickle cell disease anymore. And that story for me was just so powerful to hear because it gave this girl a new life. It gave her like a different life. You know, like she could now break her life into two points before hydroxyuria and after hydroxyuria. And like it was so clear that there's such a big difference. And the thing that really drives me nuts, and I don't want to get onto this tirade of like uh, hydroxyuria right now, there is so much misinformation out there about hydroxyuria. There are so many people that are so anti hydroxyuria some of them I, I understand. You're anti hydroxyuria because you had a bad outcome, fine. You had an adverse event, fine. You had a dose-limiting toxicity, no problem. But there's people who are against hydroxyurea who have never had any experience with hydroxyurea. And that, to me, is just like, it kills me, especially when you hear stories like this, when you see papers like this, That show, I mean, and there's no shortage of data around hydroxyurea. We can present it to anybody, right? Whoever has questions. It's just a matter of having people who are interested enough to just not shut you out immediately.
2: And I think with any medicine, you have questions. And that's why we do studies. And some of the limitations of these kind of studies are they're usually very short term. You know, we do a study and we see, are you doing better in six months? and you say well yeah that's great if you're doing better in 6 months but what if i get cancer 30 years down the road but hydroxyurea we have so much data we have people who have been on hydroxyurea for decades we have studies of small children we have studies looking at the dna for mutations we have So the side effect profile is really well known, it's really well tolerated, it's a safe drug. And one thing that always drives me nuts, and I don't know why we do this, and we have for a long time. If you have an ear infection, and you go in and you see a doctor, they say, oh, here's some amoxicillin, this'll fix your ear infection. Now I could go through the data on this, and amoxicillin is certainly helpful for ear infections, but it's not magic. Most of the ear infections are viral and it's not even doing anything. And it's not completely without side effects. I mean, it tastes pretty good, but <laughs> it causes allergic reactions. You could get the bacteria in your gut could die. And I'm not saying don't use amoxicillin. It's helpful and it works. But when we have that conversation about the ear infection, we don't lead with all of the bad things. And then say, do you want to do, do this? Yeah. We just say, here's a prescription for amoxicillin. Right. And I feel like we do such a disservice when we make hydroxyurea sound like oh here's all these bad things that could happen to you and what do you think do you want to try this when it's something that for the vast majority of people it would be very helpful i mean more so than amoxicillin and ear infections so
1: i'm totally with you on that i'm totally with you on that i um i just want to i want to thank you again for highlighting such a important, really a paradigm shifting paper here for us from the New England Journal of Medicine um, from Dr. Shalolo. And, you know, thank you to Dr. Shalolo, his team, and of course, uh, the hydroxyurea czar, Russell Ware, was the American partner on this paper. We're just really happy to have colleagues that are passionate enough to now drive things forward for the other 95% of sickle cell disease patients that are out there. Dr. Mike, thank you again for breaking this down for us in a way only you can. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Dr. Z.
0: Hi, Cheat Code listeners, this is Amy Board from Bloodstream Media, and I am here to tell you about our new show, The Pain Podcast, a new Bloodstream Media podcast made possible by tremo Pharmaceuticals. Pain affects us all, and for those of us living with chronic conditions, pain can have an even more prominent role. That is why I'm so proud to share with you The Pain Podcast, dedicated to exploring pain from every angle. The Pain Podcast provides expert knowledge, innovative strategies, and firsthand stories for from people on the front lines of the pain epidemic. Psychodynamic therapy, opioids, cannabis, chiropractic, surgery, systematic racism, Western medicine, the healthcare system, and gender bias are just some of the topics explored in the first season of this documentary-style audio experience. Additionally, three members of the sickle cell community are featured on the show. Dr. Kim Smith-Whitley of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Nori Davis, and Tyreek Powell. Did
3: chronic pain play a role getting the comedy? No, not really. I really tried to make sure the chronic pain was something that was um. What can I describe it? It was, I don't know, maybe a bad dream once in a while. But it's definitely not nothing that's gonna make me stop what I wanted to do. It's a big pain because a lot of stuff I couldn't tell, I was told not to do, and I like I still do it, but just because I. I feel like I'm, the pain, on it shouldn't stop my life. I should be able to do whatever I want to do.
0: I think that you really have to understand that there are pieces of treatment that require a really um, sound therapeutic relationship between the provider and the patient going through the pain episode, because in order to get to that mind-body experience, you really have to trust the person that's taking care of you in order to make sure that all of those elements are addressed. The Pain Podcast is produced by Bloodstream Media and sponsored by Tremo Pharmaceuticals. Tremo is currently investigating two COX-2 selective NSAIDs. NSAID, for those who aren't familiar, stands for non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs. While well, neither of these treatments are FDA-approved. They are in clinical trials, and you can learn more about those trials, Tremo's mission, and the dedicated team leading it by going to TremoRx.com. That's T-R-E-M-E-A-U-R-X.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Pain Podcast from BloodstreamMedia.com.
1: All right, Warriors. This was an awesome, awesome episode. You know why, Dr. Mike? Because this is one episode where we really focused on the 95% of sickle cell disease patients in the world who happen not to be in the Western Hemisphere.
2: That's right. We had an interview with Dr. Drew Campbell about the Cassir study. We talked about the REACH study, and uh, it was a great episode. Thanks, Dr. Z. All
1: right, Warriors. Make sure you share this episode with somebody who has sickle cell disease, needs to learn about sickle cell disease, and... Make sure you follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and Dr. Callahan at Imagineer. Keep living well with Sickle Cell. We'll catch you next time.